0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, as always, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. Hello, Fred. Good,
1: good morning. I was actually, I should really say good day, Andrew, because podcasts go out any time of the night or day. That's
0: right. People can listen <laughs> at their leisure, which is the beauty of podcasting. <laughs> now, today, Fred, we're going to look at a, a few interesting things, the death plunge of the Cassini probe after its uh, 20-year mission. We'll also take a look at uh, something that Hubble has picked up, a pitch-black planet, which sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. And uh, we're going to um, maybe talk about this strange-shaped galaxy, and if we've got time, we'll squeeze in a listener question, a really good one too, so hopefully we've got time for that. But first up, let's uh, look at the um, the end of the Cassini mission. I, I imagine there would have been some tears at mission control as uh, Cassini made its final farewell.
1: Uh, they, I'm sure there were, uh, Andrew. Um, I. Um Took uh, time out on the evening of the entry of Cassini's entry into Saturn's atmosphere. It was evening our time here in Australia, so the actual uh, impact, or or it wasn't really an impact, it's just disintegration of the spacecraft, it took place at actually about 9:57 in the evening uh, our time. But for the hour before that, uh, there was a live webcast from Mission Control at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and um, it was. Well, it was very interesting to me to see uh, a room in which I had stood uh, less than a month beforehand, because I I visited that, Uh, and also uh, to see some of the people there. And one person in particular who I met uh, at JPL, um, Linda Spilker, uh, we may have mentioned this before we might have talked about this before but i met her and i had a chance to have a chat with her she's the cassini mission scientist so she has lived and breathed cassini for you know well over a decade mm. and probably longer um and uh, i said to her <laughs> so when cassini enters saturn's atmosphere and breaks up and then vaporizes because of its high velocity through through the upper, upper layers of the atmosphere will it break your heart and she said, no, it won't, uh, because I'm already thinking about the next thing that comes after Cassini. Uh, and it, and that's a reflection of just the amount of stuff that Cassini has shown us, particularly with regard to the moons Enceladus and Titan. And she, I think, is going to be working on something called ELF. And ELF is the Enceladus life finder. Mm. And the idea is to fly uh, a probe through the ice uh, volcanoes or ice geysers of of Enceladus and not just look for minerals and hydrogen and things which we've already found with Cassini, but to look for amino acids and lipids and things that might reveal that underneath the ice of Cassini there is an ocean which has living organisms in it. So she's already thinking about that. And I thought, well, that's great, a fantastic thing to say. But I thought, um, you know, it sounded a little bit hard-nosed. But, Andrew... On the day when um, when the uh, the event happened, uh, I could see on the webcast from NASA. Linda Spilker had a handkerchief in her hand ah. <laughs> and she um, she said to a reporter afterwards it was like losing an old friend yeah. and I'm sure that's exactly what it was like I can't imagine it being anything else I mean it was pretty emotional even from this distance
0: Isn't it strange how humans can be so attached to what is ultimately an inanimate object?
1: Yes that's right but it's you know, it's got a level of artificial intelligence on it and more especially it has done everything that has been Asked of it, and that you know, you kind of you build confidence. It's like having a friend who you know will never let you down.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like right. saying goodbye to your old car. I remember when Mum and Dad sold a car that I practically grew up in. Yes, um, I was heartbroken. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was just a car. But yeah, but you know, back then right. it was it was it a, big, a name as well. Well, it was a big part of my life. You know, yeah. I'd been right. everywhere in the thing, so mm. I can understand how. It can affect uh, people, and that's what makes us human, Fred. If we didn't think like that, we'd just be robots.
1: I think that's quite right. So um, just to to wrap up, really, Cassini has uh, revolutionized not only our understanding of Saturn, its rings and its moons, but really changed our thinking on um, maybe the way planetary systems evolve, what kind of um, uh, environments we might find in planetary systems beyond our solar system, and, and perhaps more especially on ideas about where, my, where life might be and where it might come from. So some really st- stunning stuff has come out of Cassini. Uh, and I'm not surprised that people are really thinking ahead now to, to, to f- future missions because there is so, the, the, there are going to be so many questions that we still would like to answer, even though Cassini has basically answered far more than everything it was ever expected to do. So, you, you, you know, the mission was extended three times, Andrew. It was originally just going to be a four-year mission uh, in orbit around Saturn. It went into orbit in uh, uh, 2004 and uh, it was extended three times. So uh, yeah. it, it's, a, it's
0: really a credit to the engineers and the technicians and the software uh, exactly. creators to to have yeah. something in such an environment last so long. I mean, I yeah. can't get a home computer to last more than a week.
1: <laughs> oh, well, that's because you're pretty rough on things. Like-
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm very, rough, very rough indeed. So farewell, we- Cassini, and can't wait for the next one. You're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Okay, we checked all four systems and was a go. Space nuts. Now Fred, uh, the thing uh, of uh, science fiction that's uh, that's come up in the news in the last week or so uh, with the discovery by the Hubble Space Telescope telescope of a pitch black planet. Now I've I've seen a lot of science fiction shows and read a lot of science fiction books over the years and these are always places of evil. What have we found? <laughs> Uh, Well, actually, its name is kind of threatening because its
1: its name is (laughs) WASP-12b. Well, that Um, does sound evil. Yeah, WASP is actually a project that uh, basically looks for planets around other stars. It's a ground-based project using relatively small telescopes. It looks for planets around other stars by watching the star's brightness and looking for dips in the star's brightness as a planet passes in in front of it. It's a sort of common method for finding planets these days. Um, uh, But... It's it's one that's been relatively well studied. It was uh, discovered back in 2008, I think Uh, it has. The reason why it's in the news today is that uh, the Hubble telescope has been used to make follow up observations uh, of the brightness of the star and the way uh, the, the way the brightness of the star changes as this planet goes around it. So a couple of vital statistics. Uh, Andrew, it's about 1400 light years away. So, uh, of course, that's in our own galaxy, but it's not in our neighborhood. It's not in the sun's neighborhood. So this is a fairly distant one. This planet is known to be about twice the diameter of Jupiter. So it's a big planet. Wow. And you can tell that by the amount of light, the star's light, it blocks off when it passes in front of the star. Mm. And that gives you its size directly. Uh, And then the the regularity with which this happens tells you what the year of this planet is. And this planet has a year of one Earth day. So... Whizzes round its parent star, which, unsurprisingly, is called WASP-12A. Uh, so, what the planet WASP-12B goes round once a day in our time, and that actually makes it quite easy to study because you, you know, you don't have to wait very long for it to pass in front of its parent star. Yes. But, but what the Hubble's done is, um, is something pretty neat, really. It's it's not just watched for the time when this planet is passing in front of its star and dipping its light, it's also looking out for the times when the planet is just about to go round behind the parent star, and uh, and just after it has appeared from the other side of the parent star. You see what I mean? As it goes round its parent star, it's gonna be on this side and the other side. So half a revolution after it's crossed the disk of the parent star, it's gonna be going behind the parent star. Mm-hmm and so just briefly before that and after that happens you've got the light of the star plus the reflected light of the planet itself which is contributing to the starlight so if you if you analyze that very carefully it tells you about the brightness of the planet and that's what this result has uh, has uh, or, or what this work has uh, has actually produced uh, a measurement for the amount of light of starlight that's reflected off the planet and it is incredibly small um in which fact,
0: prompts we, which prompts so many questions
1: yeah that's right it does <laughs> so we know it's there because it blocks off the light of of its star but when it's on the other side of the star and contributing to the to the star's light it, it, it's basically making virtually no contribution um we in the world of astronomy talk about something called albedo and albedo is um a latin word meaning whiteness how white a thing is yeah um, and uh, in fact, so it, it, the albedo of a, of a surface is how much light it reflects. So for example, the moon's surface is actually quite a low albedo. The moon reflects about 12% of the light falling on it. Um, and a- actually, if it was more like 50%, the moon would be nearly as bright as day in, in our skies. Mm moon looks bright, but it actually is not reflecting all that much sunlight.
0: Yeah, I um, mean, let's just ponder that for a moment. If the moon yeah. was an ice moon rather than yes, you know, exactly. dusty old basalt, our, exactly. our full moon nights would probably be quite, you know, we probably have daylight. We might even have effect. to wear
1: sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> it would be very weird. Yeah, very weird. That's right. So uh, that, that's a, that your point is absolutely well made there. Uh, but this one, this planet, has uh, an albedo, about half that of the moon. It's only reflecting something like 6% of the starlight that falls on it. And that is a real puzzle mm. because um, we really don't know why uh, it should be uh, so low. Um, the the thinking is that with a with a, a, a hot uh Jupiter-sized planet or twice Jupiter-sized planet like WASP-12b, you would expect it to be a, a gaseous planet that has a much higher reflectivity as Jupiter does. Uh, it's different from Jupiter though because this um, planet has a surface temperature uh, of well over 2000 degrees. It's, I think it's 2600 or thereabouts, something like that. So it's a very, very hot world um, and that doesn't really tie with a very, very dark world. Yes. So I think the jury's out on why that should be and um, some very interesting research. And maybe, maybe, Anne. Andrew, it is just because it's
0: evil. It could be just that, yes. <laughs> um, that. But oh. it does, it, so do, do we know what it's possibly made of? I mean, we know a fair bit about closer planets. Uh, this one they've certainly been studying pretty closely too, but do we know what, what the formation is made of?
1: Uh, no, but the, we've got clues <clears throat> um, uh, that come from... <clears throat> uh, the, the ability of the Hubble telescope not just to see, to measure the light but to measure the light in different colours as well. So that gives us an idea of, you know, whether you're reflecting more light towards the blue end of the spectrum or the red end of the spectrum. Uh, and that is really uh, a, a, you know, it's it's a, it, it's, a, it, it's the only clue that you've got as to what kind of things might be going on. But there are suggestions that um You know, there are some some uh, models that you can build of planets that that have um, what it's actually things that. Give you uh, you know peculiar chemicals in the upper atmosphere of a of a, of a planet like this, a gas giant, that actually absorb light. Mm. Um, and uh, but the problem is that they all, all they only work for cooler planets than this one. This one's too hot for that mechanism to work.
0: Yeah, it, it so, could could it be something like the, there's a the, an element in the upper atmosphere that, that yes. lets light in, but then as the light penetrates deeper, there's something stopping it from bouncing back out again.
1: That, mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, um, there the, are the sort of, well, they the talk about clouds and alkali metals and things like that, but the, but as I said, these don't work because it, 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 it's got such a high surface temperature. Mm, 2,600 degrees Celsius, as I was mentioning. So yeah, it wow. is, uh, yeah, a big mystery.
0: And for the fans of Dune, we are talking, of course, about Geedy Prime. And if nobody understands what I'm talking about, <laughs> I have no idea why. Um this is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Dr. Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Okay, Fred, now we're gonna talk about uh talk about the, the shape of galaxies. Now there are so many galaxies out there it's it's uh hard to count them. Um and of course we know what galaxies are. They're just big clusters of all that other stuff that, you know solar systems and gas clouds and you name it Um, but uh, it would appear that uh, they've been doing some work on um, defining their shape and I would imagine because of the way the universe formed there would be some form of consistency of shape I mean we do see anomalies from time to time but have they come up with a, a basic formula
1: So, uh, well, yes, in a way, that's what's happened. This is a a story that um, is fairly close to home for me because it, First of all, it uses uh, data from our telescope, the Anglo-Australian Telescope at uh, Coonabarabran. Uh, and secondly, it's been done, the lead author is actually a former colleague of mine at the AAO, Caro Foster, uh, Caroline Foster. She, uh, she now works for the University of Sydney. But, um, but a lot of this work that she's done was done while she was with us at the AAO. Uh, and so she's used an instrument on our Anglo-Australian Telescope. It's called SAMI. Uh, if I could remember what that stands for I'd tell you (laughs) but it's basically uh, it's a machine that lets you look at the detailed spectrum and that's the you know the the rainbow spectrum which has this barcode of information in it of of several objects at a time but in some detail Uh, you probably remember that I've spent a lot of my career working on uh, techniques using fiber optics where you, you, you just use one optical fiber to pull the light off a star or a galaxy, and that tells you what its spectrum is. But you can also, if you're clever, and some of these people are pretty clever, you can build a machine that has maybe, you know, 60 odd fibers um, clustered uh, around uh, in, in a very tight bundle. So, you can not just see a galaxy, a single measurement of a galaxy, but you can get light from every little bit of this galaxy. Um, And you can do that then for many, many galaxies that Mm. that we call it multi object work. And that's what SAMI does. Uh, So, it lets you not only look at many objects at once, it also lets you analyze the detailed structure in each of those objects. And that is what Caro has done uh, with a set of, if I remember rightly, I don't have the press release in front of me, but I think it's about 800, uh, 850 galaxies. And the problem that she's tried to address is how you tell what the true shape of a galaxy is. Uh, As you said, there are galaxies out there, the universe is full of them. We now estimate 2 trillion altogether in the observable universe. Um, Ten a penny they are. Uh, and uh, so, you know, these huge aggregations of stars and gas and dust. But when we see them, we, we're we kind of presented with a snapshot view, um, which means that, you know, uh, as a galaxy, maybe a galaxy uh, as it's, uh, its shape. Sorry, let me put it this way. Uh, as a galaxy presents different sides to you as it sort of moves around in space, that is almost certainly happening. Uh, but you can't. Uh, You know, it's on timescales of millions or even billions of years. Uh, So what we see is this snapshot. And um, it means that you can never really get an absolute idea of what the shape of the galaxy is, because all you're seeing is one projection of it. You're not seeing, you know, a a three-dimensional view. Um, And so galaxies we know come in different shapes and sizes even the ones that have a disc like our own which we call spiral galaxies some have got very fat spirals some have got thin spirals some have got uh, loosely wound spiral arms some are tightly wound spiral arms they're 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 just like people they come in lots and lots of different shapes so um, to cut uh, a long story short what Caro and her colleagues have done Uh, is basically um, used the SAMI instrument to measure the, the velocities of stars within the galaxies, which you can actually do with that kind of technology. And then by using those star velocities, they're able to infer... What the true shape of the galaxy is, and what you know, what its true, uh, di- uh, almost what its true dimensions are, because we get the numbers from the velocities. So a very nice piece of work. Once again, what we call survey astronomy, looking at many different objects, and actually one that I think will uh, change our understanding of of the way galaxies evolve.
0: Yeah, I, I like the description of the difficulty that astronomers face in trying to solve these pro- problems. I mean, people would naturally think oh, I'm looking at a galaxy and. Th- and and what I'm seeing is its shape. But uh, the description they, they give is uh, that of a, um, um, a spinning coin. You flip a coin in the air and you can see its shape because of yes. its revolutions. That's right. But what you're looking at when you look at a galaxy is a snapshot of the coin in flight, which exactly. doesn't define. <laughs> it's impossible to define a shape. And so that's the problem. That defines it, it, the problem.
1: Yeah. And, and in fact, I was going to talk about the coin, uh, Andrew, because it's a brilliant analogy for this, but I can't claim any credit for that because it's a journalist on the Sydney Morning Herald who put that idea together. And it's uh, well it's a
0: clever uh, analysis of the is issue a, and it yeah, describes the problem greatly. So, um, yeah, uh, d- defining uh, an absolute shape for so many trillion things out there is very, very difficult. Indeed. Mm. All right. Um, well, we're on our way. Uh, now, the shape of things to come um, on uh, Space Nuts uh, will be, uh, we'll, we'll answer one of your questions shortly.
1: Roger, your lot here also.
0: Space Nuts. So, finally, Fred, uh, listener questions. Uh, we've got one today which sort of looks back at uh, the, the um, descaling scaling De-orbiting, the destruction, whatever you want to call it, of Cassini, uh, and it's a it's a really good question and one we've we've pondered before. Uh, what would happen if one of the next Martian probes discovers life, uh, with uh, protection protocols in place? That would surely mean we would need to shelve any human exploration of the Red Planet, and I cannot imagine that it would be able to, uh, we'd be able to send humans to Mars and keep them from contaminating the environment with Earth organisms. So, what's happening uh, in that regard? Um, there must be some sort of plan. Can you shed some light on this? Uh, that comes from Clem, uh, Clem in Mornington. It's a good question and one we've pondered uh, a few times uh, in recent months because. It is, it is an issue.
1: That's right, Andrew. And Clem's absolutely on the money in saying that, um, uh, yes, uh, the Cassini spacecraft was uh, deorbited. It, it, it was made to break up and vaporise in the atmosphere of Saturn in order to avoid uh, any potential uh, you know, microbial contamination of some of Saturn's moons, which may have uh, indigenous life of their own, which perhaps given a few billion years might develop into something quite interesting. Um, so it's a so. Uh, Clem's question is, OK, uh, we are looking for life on Mars, but we're also talking about sending astronauts to Mars. Uh, probably in 2035 or so, NASA will send its first astronauts there. It seems pretty unlikely to me that anybody will get there before that just because it is so hard although certainly um, a few people such as Elon Musk have got uh, ambitions in that direction but the bottom line is um, if Mars is uh, such a sensitive place for Uh, embryonic living organisms, how can we justify sending a spacecraft full of humans who are basically (laughs) full of living organisms uh, as well as being living themselves? Uh, How does that tally with what are called planetary protection rules? And the planetary protection rules are really strict in talking about how many Um, microbial spores a spacecraft can legitimately carry to mars without breaking the rules it's a it's a international protocols that actually go back 50 years it's really quite remarkable stuff Um, So, uh, it's a question that had occurred to me, too, and as I mentioned um, when we were talking about Cassini, I spent some time, not very long, but spent time at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, a a month or so ago, and I actually asked one of the scientists there this exact question. How can we reconcile uh, sending humans to to Mars when planetary protection protocols really dictate that we've got to be very careful? And to be honest, I didn't really get a straight answer. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, uh, with Clem's point, there has to be some sort of plan. Well, I'm sure there is, but um, it's not being terribly well enunciated, I don't think. Okay. So uh, the, the, the answer I got was we've got to wait and see what we we do find. Uh, In other words, there are missions going to Mars, like there's um, there's, uh, NASA sending one called Mars 2020, ESA sending uh, the ExoMars mission, and these are specifically looking for life on Mars, not just signs of habitability, which is what Curiosity and Opportunity and Spirit have been doing, but these other ones will look specifically for life. So um, if they find any hint at all uh, of life present or past on Mars, then I think that becomes a game changer for uh, the way we see these planetary protection rules. Uh, because if you then want to send micro, uh, send humans to Mars with all their microbes, you've really got to change the paradigm under which you're working. Um, because the planet- planetary protection rules as they stand at the moment, really basically forbid it. Mm. So I think we we're going to go through a really interesting period, perhaps a decade or so, when some of this will be revisited. Uh, and uh, you know, there've been calls in the past to lighten up the planetary protection rules, uh, and it may be that those calls will start to get uh, heard in high places. So, wait and see. I hope we're able to report on it in uh, in, in uh, space, Nuts Andrew.
0: Yes. Uh, however, it does bring in, and I'm sure Clem's already thought of this, the yes but question. Um, what if in all our probing uh, with unmanned spacecraft and the like, we don't find anything, so we send people there and we go, oh, look, a frog. (laughs) I mean, that's a possibility.
1: Exactly. Well, Mars is a big place. You know, Mars has more or less the same land area as the Earth has, even though it's half the diameter of the Earth. It Mm -hmm. doesn't have the oceans that we have. But 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 that
0: that is a distinct possibility. We'll find nothing, so we'll decide to go there, and then we'll find something, and, of course, all those protocols go down the toilet.
1: Yeah, right. We might try and clarify a bit more on that. I should, um, next time I'm talking to um, somebody who knows about, in fact, uh, there's a good chance I might be able to do that tonight because um, I'm talking to two astronauts tonight, NASA astronauts. Oh, nice. So I'll let you know, I'll let you know. OK. Yeah. Thank what, you very much, watch Clem. This it's a great space. Yeah. Yeah.
0: um It's like a science fiction show, Clem, that ends with a question mark on the screen. <laughs> So that's, that's where we're leaving this one. <laughs> but thanks for your question. We appreciate it. And we certainly do encourage more and more questions because uh, they make us think and they make Fred actually work for a change. Uh, Fred, thank you as always. Uh, they don't call me Workaholic Fred for nothing. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure, Andrew. We'll speak next time for sure. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and from me, Andrew Dunkley. Thank you so much, as always, for listening and following us, and Facebooking us, and Twittering us, and whatever other weird things that we do in the um, in the Twitter sphere. Uh, until next time. Goodbye from Space Nuts. Space Nuts.
1: You've been listening to the Space Nuts Podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio and Stitcher, or your favorite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Sights.com.